Good morning. It's good to see all you. Thanks for braving the weather and being here uh, this morning. I want to ask a, a question of you. How many of you in this room have ever been the victim of identity theft? Can you raise your hand if that is true? I think last year something like 9 million uh, Americans were victims of identity theft. And whether you have or haven't, you can probably imagine the emotions that go along with getting your identity stolen, right? You probably feel vulnerable, powerless, and even pretty angry, I bet. And the reason for that is because it leaves us in a position of weakness, a position where we can do nothing about it. Well, what if I told you that identity theft happens all the time in the lives of Christians, including my own life? What if I told you that we are constantly the victims of identity theft, or at least, the very least, we are constantly being attacked about our identity? And what happens is we too are left feeling vulnerable, powerless, and oftentimes angry, most often angry at ourselves. And what if I told you even sadder than that is that we have everything that we need, that we have all the security we need as Christians in order to not let it happen, and yet we still do, time and time again. Well, what am I talking about? Obviously, you can tell I'm not dressed like I normally would on a Sunday morning. It's not just because I knew not as many people would be here uh, today. What I have on here is a shirt with many of the lies that go against our identity. Many lies that Satan whispers about who we are. If you know about Satan, you know scripture describes him as the great deceiver. His main weapon against us is lying. And the thing he does is he loves to lie most about our identity. And so what are some of the things we are told, we are whispered to by our enemy? We are told we're boring, unsuccessful, unworthy, ugly, alone, unwanted. We are left with no power to live the Christian life successfully. And sadly, what happens is we get bombarded by these whispers, by these lies, and we start believing them. I start to wear them around in my life. I carry them with me, and it's not just in a shirt. It's in my heart, and the reason is I don't really know my true identity. And so I'm easily a victim of identity theft. If you're following on your notes with me this morning, we believe lies about ourselves because we don't know our identity, our true identity. And we let these lies start to define us. You see, here's what I think happens to a lot of us as Christians. There's a point, I hope, in all of our life, at some point, where we recognize that we were sinners and we needed a Savior. And we saw the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy that was poured out there. And by faith, we placed our trust in Jesus and we were saved. We were saved. And uh, we were, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, born again. We were born again. We were born again into a a new life with Christ. We were forgiven of our sins. And we start off from that moment with all this hope and promise and joy. But what also happens is at that moment, Satan wasn't so happy about that decision, right? And so he's going to now do everything he can to sort of attack us. And pretty soon what happens is we start struggling with all this stuff again, right? The same sins, start to come into my life. I start believing the same lies about who I am. And listen, here's the key. Here's what we think happens at that point is I've just got to try harder. I I think what the gospel means is God's given me this eraser from heaven and now I just got to get to work. Maybe I can get rid of these lies if I just scrub and rub and wash hard enough, OxyClean, anybody, right? Maybe, just maybe if I work at it really hard, I can get 
rid of these lies. But eventually, we realize we can't. And so we start to believe these lies. We, we feel defeated. We keep sinning. We call, I call this like a cycle of shame and guilt. Have you been there? I've lived there many times. I feel shameful because this is who I think I am, and I keep struggling with the same feelings, and I feel guilty, so I try harder, and it just doesn't work. And then I start to believe this dangerous lie that I have printed on your notes there, which is you have no power to live the Christian life, Steve. You thought this gospel thing, you know, this thing called good news was supposed to be good news. Well, what's so good about it? Here you are, believing the same things about yourself, sinning in the same ways. I mean, wasn't this supposed to be life transforming? What's so good about the good news? It doesn't work. And the reason it, quote, doesn't work, quite honestly, is because so many of us as Christians have never truly actually understood what happened to us at the moment we were born again. At the moment we came to faith in Christ, I'd put it this way, we don't know our true identity. Some of you probably like those movies, the Born series, Born Again, or the Born Identity series, right? I wanted to call this message the Born Again Identity. I know that's so cheesy and bad, so that's why I didn't. But a lot of us don't know what happens when we're born again, what happens to our identity when we're born again. So you see, what actually happens when we receive the gospel, not just that God forgives your sins and then gives you an eraser and tells you, hey, good luck, get to work, you better try really hard at getting rid of all this stuff in your life. That's called religion. It's called religion. That doesn't ever work. He actually had to give us a whole new life, right? He had to give us an entirely new identity, and that's exactly what he did. The moment you were born again, you were placed in Christ. And now that we've been placed in Christ, you know what God says about us? I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't just like, oh, here's what I want God to say. These are scriptures. He says that we are a carrier of God's glory, that I'm loved. He says I'm redeemed. I am forgiven. I'm dead to the power of sin. I'm adopted. I'm, I'm healed. I'm a child of his. I'm his son. These are the truths of what God says about me the moment I am born again the moment I come to faith in Christ. As Christians, our identity is now not this thing, but this thing. Our identity is in Christ. It is only when we begin to believe these things that we will actually be able to live out the Christian life. You see, the truth is, you see that lie there? I have printed on your notes. It's it's true. If you try to do it in your own power. You see, you really do have no power on your own. There's no such thing as a magic eraser or OxyClean. We have to know this in order to fight against this. We have to know what God says about us so we stop believing what Satan says about us. We can't do that on our own, but we can do it. And the power that God has given us, friends. In Christ, we have the power to live the Christian life, and this is exactly why we want to spend the better part of an entire year as a church family studying this idea of identity in the letter to Ephesians. We have to know who we are. We have to learn to know who we are before we can ever get to that stuff about living the Christian life, right? And what we're going to discover in Ephesians is before we ever get to the hows, all the do's and don'ts that we want to jump right to, all that eraser stuff, all that sin, all that lies, is before we can ever get there, we have to first know 
who God has made us in Christ. If you're following on your notes here, we must know our identity in Christ to live the Christian life. You know, it's kind of amazing if you've ever read Ephesians, or for that matter, most of Paul's letters, there's always this very similar pattern to Paul's letters. Have you caught on to it? It's not until chapter 4 of Ephesians that Paul starts talking about all the do's and don'ts of the Christian life or the, the, the way that we're supposed to live, right? For three chapters before he ever gets to that, he just spends time talking about what happened when we are in Christ. Why does Paul do that? Why does he do that in his letters? Because he knows unless we know this first, we can never get to that stuff. If we get those orders reversed, we are going to find ourselves in that cycle of shame and guilt and frustration. And we are going to believe the lie that there is no power in the Christian life. So he spends almost always in his letters defining the truth about who we are. And once we know our truth about who we are, that we can begin to live the Christian life. Now next fall, don't get me wrong, we're going to talk about what it means to live the Christian life, how that actually looks. He gets to that in chapter 4. But for the better part of this spring, actually all the way up until June, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And our hope by doing this is the more we are convinced of our identity, the less we will let it get stolen the less we will let it get stolen by Satan and believe those lies we so easily believe. So that's where we're headed in this book of Ephesians. Can I pray this morning as we uh, get ready to kind of, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to get started right away in uh, week one and verses one through three, but let's pray. Lord, I bet you anything, 99% of us in this room wear that first shirt sometimes where we believe lies about ourselves, where we wonder if there really is any power in the gospel. So God, we pray now as we begin this series in Ephesians, you would go before us, that you would help us to know your truth, that you would help us to see what you say about us according to your word, not according to what Satan whispers to us, not according to what we've been led to believe. Help us to stop believing lies and start believing truth. And would it begin today? Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you so much that this is a part of your Bible that you have given to us to study, God. We pray that it would be an exciting series, that it would be a a series that would open up many lives and many hearts to the glory of what it means to be in Christ. Everybody prayed and said amen. Well, let's start as we do every time we begin a new book of the Bible by doing a little background on that book. What do we know about the book of Ephesians? Most people believe Ephesians was written around 61 uh, AD. Actually, before I get there, why don't we read the first part of Ephesians? I'll have you read verse 1 out loud on your notes there, and I'll finish with verse 2 for, the, for now. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, like I said, Ephesians was probably written sometime around 61 AD, which is interesting. That's only three decades after Jesus' crucifixion. And it was written by whom, according to the very first word in verse 1? Who wrote Ephesians? Paul. And we're going to see later, Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. So right away, if you're following on your notes, just a little background here. Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul in AD 61 from a prison. Now, what do we know about Paul? Well, originally, we know that his name was Saul. He descended from the tribe of Benjamin, where the first king also descended, and his name was Saul. Most likely, he was named after uh, this first king. 
We know that Saul studied under the greatest Jewish scholar of his day, Gamaliel. He was a zealous Jewish young man. I mean, he loved the Jewish faith, right? He, therefore, when a new, uh, when a new ministry popped up, when a new sect popped up called Christians who were claiming that this Jesus of Nazareth guy was the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world, Paul, in his zealousness, decided that's blasphemy, There's no way this Jesus can be God and Messiah and all these things he claimed. And so Saul dedicated his life to destroy this movement. He went from city to city, arresting, beating, hounding down Christians as an attempt to, to put this movement to death. But something happened to Saul that would radically change his life. One day on a road to Damascus on another one of his manhunts, Saul was encountered personally by Jesus himself. And you can read about this amazing story in Acts chapter 9. And this encounter, it changed everything. Saul of Tarsus, this devout Jew, became the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, you can't tell me God doesn't have a great sense of humor, right? He takes the most devout Jew possible who didn't believe Gentiles. What are Gentiles again? If you've been with us, there anybody who's not. Paul didn't believe anybody who wasn't Jewish was a part of God's kingdom. So God, in his sense of humor, takes the Jew of all Jews and makes him the apostle to the Gentiles. And that is what Paul goes wholeheartedly after in his life. Now, it's really important to point out here in verse 1, Paul didn't choose the designation apostle. It's not something he just decided, oh, I'm going to be an apostle. A lot of people in Paul's life would question whether or not he was truly an apostle at the same level as Peter or John for that matter. But notice again, what what did he say in verse 1? If you're following on your notes there, Paul was called to be an apostle by Jesus himself. He didn't choose it. He was called to be, just like John, just like Peter. He was called to be an apostle by the authority of Jesus himself. And so that's why, friends, if you wonder, why are we studying a letter like Ephesians? Well, it's because it comes from Jesus' own apostle, Paul. It carries with it the authority that it would have if it came from Jesus himself. I mean, that's what we say about Scripture, right? It is God's inspired word given to us. And Paul has the authority that was needed for this to be considered scripture. So as I said, Paul is converted. He begins to go around the world as this apostle to the Gentiles, attempting uh, to convert the nations to the good news of Jesus Christ. And one of the places he visits is this city called Ephesus. And we have a map up here of where Ephesus is located. You can see Jerusalem is sort of down south. So Paul would go on these journeys, right? And he would travel around the known world. And one of the stops he made was in Ephesus. Ephesus is a very interesting and important city. If you strolled through the town of Ephesus in the first century, you would have found several interesting, important structures, but the most important by far was the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the ancient wonders of the, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world at the time. Here's a picture of what they think this looked like in its glory. As you can see, the footprint of the temple was at least the size of a football field, and it had 127 60-foot marble pillars. It may have been the largest building of its kind when it was completed. There were other important structures in Ephesus as well. Why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to have this picture in your head of this podunk town somewhere where there's a few donkeys and a couple of huts, okay? We're talking about the fourth largest city in the known world of the time. It's probably the second most important city Paul ever visited other than Rome itself, So his first encounter with this important city with Ephesians was around the year 53 AD, but it was a short visit. 
He decided two years later to come back, and on his third missionary journey, he actually spent two or three years in the city of Ephesus, beginning to build a church, and this church became a very strong church in the first couple of centuries. As you can imagine, living with these people for two years, at least Paul must have had some really close relationships with the people of Ephesus. In fact, if you want to see how close of a relationship they had, I really encourage you, if you're in a life group, you're going to do this, read Acts chapter 20 sometime. You're going to see Paul is feeling called to go to Jerusalem at this point in his life, but people know what that's going to mean. That's going to mean he's probably going to be arrested. And so they're all down there. The whole church is down at the beach saying goodbye to, to Paul. They don't want him to go. They're weeping. They're crying. Paul senses he has to go. And so I'll just fast forward now to A.D. 61. Sure enough, just like the people of Ephesus feared, Paul was arrested when he went to Jerusalem. And eventually he was brought to Rome where he is now placed in a prison. And in this prison, Paul begins to write letters. And aren't we glad he did? Aren't we glad Paul took a bad situation and today we are benefiting from it? He wrote letters to the churches he had visited and these letters now compromise what most of what we know is the New Testament, right? These letters Paul wrote to these individual churches. One of the letters is this letter to the Ephesians. Now, one of the unique things about this letter, I just want to really quickly point out, if you've read Paul's other letters, you always know at the end of the letters, Paul spends all this time like giving shout outs to all of his friends, right? I mean, Romans 16 is just a big, hey, say hi to so-and-so and say hi to so-and-so and all these kind of things. They mean a lot to me. There's none of that in Ephesians. And I find that a little odd, don't you? Living with these people for two or three years, you would think he had some really deep relationships. Well, the reason there are no personal greetings, because this letter was actually intended for a much wider audience than just the church at Ephesus. In fact, it's what's called a circular letter. It would have been given to one church. The church would have read it. Most likely, they would have copied it, right? This was, they understood whose authority this was coming from. Then they would send that on to the next church and to the next church. I mean, if you remember that original map, there were all kinds of churches around that area. So this, this letter would have been circulated among the different churches. That's why there's probably no personal greeting. But really, what we have here is one of the most concise and memorable and most amazing descriptions of the God and its implications in all of Scripture. I mean, six incredibly packed chapters that we're going to have the chance to unpack together as a church. As I mentioned, uh, so if you're following on your notes here, I just, I'm saying that to say this letter was written to the churches, not just one church, but the churches that Paul helped start in and around Ephesus. In and around Ephesus. <clears throat> As I mentioned in the intro, Ephesians, you could really break it down, as we have, into two bigger sections. The first three chapters of the book are talking about our identity, whereas the last three chapters talk about the implications of that identity. But uh, for the sake of a little more clarity, I've broken it down uh, a little bit more specifically. This is where we're going to be going here the next, this better part of this year. Uh, First of all, in chapter 1, starting in verse 3 through chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to talk about, if you're following, our individual identity. In Christ. We're going to honestly every week basically ask the question what are the lies that you're believing about yourself? And what does God's truth say about these lies? I mean, are you still believing some of the things that are on this first shirt? How do we stop believing those? How do we stop wearing that shirt? Well, we start knowing who we are in Christ. And we're going to learn who God has made us as, in, as individuals in Christ the moment we were born again. 
But that's not all Paul talks about. If you're following, the second one there is we're going to talk about our corporate identity in Christ. Chapter 2, starting in verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 21, deals all about this idea that we're not just lone wolf Christians, right? We're not just doing this on our own. God has created this thing called the church. We're intended to do this in life together, and he spends time talking about what it means to be the church. Then we get to chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and that's where Paul starts talking about living a life worthy of our calling in Christ. Living a life worthy of our calling in Christ. And these are some familiar passages, right? Paul is going to talk about what does it look like as Christians to be married, to raise children? What does it look like to live in a world that's sort of opposed uh, to the conduct that we're attempting to live by? How do you live a life worthy of the calling you've been given? But notice, again, that doesn't come till chapter 4. What happens when we jump to chapter 4 too early? We get into that cycle of shame and guilt, right? So first, know your identity. Now, here's how you live. Finally, in the last part of the book of Ephesians, we're going to talk about fighting our enemy fully equipped in Christ. And this is really one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture that I'm referring to here, which is the armor of God passage, right? So listen, God doesn't just say, good luck, here's an eraser. He's actually equipped us with everything we need to throw off the lies and the sins that continually plague us. And we're going to get there uh, next, next fall is when we're going to do that. So that's where we're headed. But without further ado, let's start unpacking now this first section. What does Paul say about our individual identity? And I was, I'm going to do one verse. Verse 3, basically. Let me read the whole thing again, but we're just going to look at one verse, essentially, verse 3. Although I am going to cheat a little and talk about verse 1 again. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now would you read verse 3 out loud on your notes there? It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, two things for me this week, there's more probably, but two at least popped up for me about our individual identity that I want to point out here. The first is right away in verse 1. Notice how Paul addresses this letter. If you're following on your notes, Paul addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. The saints who are in Ephesus. Some of your translations might say the holy ones. It's the same word. I wanted to use this translation because I want you to know it is the word saints, and no word maybe today has gone under more like confusion than this word saints, right? I mean, are you surprised that Paul is addressing this letter to some saints? Does this mean this was just meant for the elite of the congregation of Ephesus, like this special holy group of people, the the leaders, right? As Paul, as Jeff often says, you know, the Navy SEAL Christians. Is that who this is for? After all, I'm confused because saints are usually dead people. Saints are dead people who have achieved like this elite spiritual status somehow. All you have to do is look at a dictionary to see that they define a saint as someone who is officially recognized for holiness of life. Now the question, of course, is who makes this recognition? Who officially decides who is a saint? Well, usually the answer to that is some religious body decides that. And the process by which a person is made a saint is called canonization. 
Canonization is where a deceased person's life is examined carefully to see whether that person qualifies to be called a saint, right? If the candidate's character and conduct are found to be above reproach, and this is really important, if they were found to have performed at least two miracles, then you qualify to be called a saint. Now, that's interesting, and I'm not going to make any comment about it. All I'm going to say is you can't find that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, in this one letter, six chapters long, not too long of a letter, Paul is going to call the readers of this letter saints at least nine times. At least nine times he's going to refer to the entire church of Ephesus as saints. And obviously these people are still alive, right? Well, they're not anymore, don't get me wrong. But when he wrote this, when he wrote this, they were still alive, right? And I'm going to bet not many of them performed a couple, any miracles, Maybe some of them did. I don't know. So what's the deal here? How can Paul call these people saints? Well, the deal is, if you're following on your notes, a saint is anyone who has trusted Christ as Savior. So look at me here. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Can you look at me? Have you? Then you're a saint. You are a saint. You might be thinking, well, that's who decided that? Did Pastor Steve, I mean, after all, I'm a pastor, right? I have authority. Am I the one designating you as a saint? You lived a good week. You had a good week this week, right? Not so much sinning. Is that what that's about? How, how do we decide who gets to be called a saint? Well, here's where we come full circle here. Remember what happened the second you trusted Christ? You were born again. And when you are born again, you are placed in Christ. You are placed in Christ. And what it means to be placed in Christ is that when God sees you as a Christian, what he sees is his son. He sees Christ. He sees Christ. He has taken Christ's sacrifice, his his, uh, death on a cross, and it has been, this is a theological word, imputed to you. You have been given Christ's righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees Jesus. He sees his son. You are holy. You are righteous. The word saint just comes from the word sanctified, which means set apart, right? When a person trusts Christ as Savior, they are set apart. They are set apart to be in Christ, to be in Christ. They are born again, given a totally new life. Friends, I got to tell you, for so many years in my life, I knew I had become a Christian. Okay, I became a Christian at a very early age. I, I knew that. I believed that. And yet I believe that God still viewed me as a dirty, rotten sinner. I believed that God still saw me as that first sure, right? I mean, he'd given me the eraser. What was my problem? Why was I having such a hard time getting rid of all this sin, getting rid of all these lies, but fell so short? And like I said, I constantly got into that cycle of shame and guilt. Have you lived there? I just got to try harder. I just got to try harder. Trying harder didn't work, though. And I'd feel shameful. I'd feel guilty, so I'd try even harder. I'd amp it up even more. I'd even read more of the Bible. I mean, I'd do all the right things. And yet I'd still end up feeling all these things. I believe the lie. There really is no power to live a Christian life. And I'd come to verses like this, like a saint? You've got to be kidding me. I'm a failure, if anything. But, Whether or not that's how I see myself, that is not how God sees me when I am in Christ. 
the way God sees you, the way God sees me now as a saint. If you're on your notes there, don't believe the lie, believe the truth. God sees us as saints because we are in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong here. This has nothing to do with anything we did, right? It's not because of my exemplary life. It's not because I've performed any miracles. It's because of what he did, period. It's because of what he did, period. It's the same for you. When God sees you, he's not looking at, hey, did you have a good week this week? Did you do more good than you did bad? No, it's because he looks at you and he sees you as in Christ. This is why Paul can't get over this mystery. This is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's why he starts this letter to Ephesians saying, To the saints at Ephesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly right, isn't it? Grace. Grace is what makes us saints. That's it. Undeserved favor. Nothing on what I have done. It is grace. And when it is, I believe that grace. When I believe I've been placed in Christ, I can experience not shame and guilt like I had been, but peace. Peace. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we say the gospel really is good news, isn't it? It really is amazingly good news. The second thing we learn about our identity is found in verse 3. We read that. It says, We have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, that's kind of a confusing little statement there, but let me make one comment before I unpack it. You really need to understand that that is written in the past tense. You might even want to write that down. Verse 3, past tense. Meaning, that is something that has already happened to you if you are in Christ. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So like, don't think like, oh, there's going to be that day when I am in heaven. And yeah, that'll be true. Finally, all this stuff is shed, all these lies about me, all this sin. There, that's when I'm going to experience every spiritual blessing. No, past tense. It already happened to you when, if you're falling on your notes, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ the moment we believe. The moment you believe. So everything that is on my t-shirt, you can come look at it after. You can even borrow it if you just need to be reminded someday. Like, right? If I'm, just not, if I'm just feeling that, maybe you just want to wear this around. It might be like a tent on most of you, but everything here is true about me. The moment I came to faith in Christ. The moment I came to faith in Christ. That's why it's written in the past tense here. Now, two questions arise to me. What does Paul mean by the heavenly realms? And what are the blessings? I mean, what are some of these things we're going to be talking about? Well, when Paul says the heavenly realms, what he's describing is the unseen spiritual reality that's all around us, right? One of the extraordinary promises of Scripture is the moment you become a believer, you become immediately citizens of two worlds. We're going to talk more about this in chapter 2 of Ephesians, but we're told in Scripture that Christ is now seated in heaven at the Father's right hand, and yet, the moment you become a believer, you sit there with him as his co-heir, as his conqueror. We sit, we have a place, we are positioned in the heavenly realms, and yet we still live here physically on earth in a human body. So I just want you to understand, if you're a Christian, you are living in two worlds all the time. There's an invisible world, and there's a visible world. There's a physical world, and there's a spiritual world at work. Think of it this way. The president of the United States is always the president of the United States, even if he's not sitting at his desk, right? 
I mean, it doesn't just when you're sitting at the Oval Office is he the president. It's because he has the right to sit at the desk. That he's always going to be the president. And likewise, as Christians, no matter where we are on this earth, we are always going to be seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. And that's the basis of our life and power. Like I said, we're going to talk more about this in chapter 2. But I think this is why we get so frustrated with the Christian life. This is why we believe the lie that there's no power to live the Christian life. Because we forget We forget there's two realities at work here, right? Paul will say it this way at the very end of Ephesians in chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Here's what I wanted you to see. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is why we get frustrated. It's why we find ourselves in the cycle of shame because we think all we need is more willpower. Willpower is is what's going to give me victory in the Christian life. No. What we need is a totally another kind of power. We need a spiritual power. And that's exactly what God has given us. In fact, that's what the next part of this verse 3 says. Leads to the second question, right? What did Paul mean by every spiritual blessing? Well, write this next to verse 3 there. It's really important. Literally what that means, every spiritual blessing, is all the blessings of the Spirit. We have been given all the blessings of the Spirit. Spirit with a capital S, right? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. So, I know this is starting to maybe get a little too complicated to you, but I just... This is so, this is why, this is such a mystery. It's why it's so amazing. So not only are we placed in the heavenlies the moment we believe, not only right now are we positioned with Christ, but you know what also takes place the moment we believe? God is placed in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's like called, it's called the great exchange. We exchange our life for his. Christ in us the hope of glory. We're seated in the heavenlies, and yet he is also seated in my life, friends. He is seated in my life. If you're following on your notes, that's why we don't have to believe the lie that we've been told. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live the Christian life. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live the Christian life. It's Christ in us. We have everything we need. It's not in our own power. That's awesome to me. That's why we can call it good news. Of course, we're still going to fail, right? You're still going to believe some of those things. Sometimes I do. You're still going to sin. You're still going to fall in that cycle of shame and guilt. But, but, we have everything we need. We have everything we need. All we have to learn is how to grow into walking in the Spirit, walking our lives in Christ, learning how to be transformed into God's image. And yes, we're going to fail, and we're going to believe those things, but never forget, you've got everything you need already right now. You are in Christ. He is in you. So we can't believe the lie that we started out this morning, that there's no power in the Christian life. There's all the power we could ever possibly need to live this life. We just have to learn how to tap into it. We just have to learn how to walk in the Spirit of God, friends. Next week, we're going to start to learn that. We're going to start to learn what these blessings we've been given in Christ. In fact, I didn't say this earlier, but verse 3 is really the beginning of one long verse. 
uh, one long sentence in Greek. It goes all the way to verse 12. I mean, just look at that right now in your, in your Bible there. Just look at how incredible that is. Verse 3 through verse 12 is one sentence. It's the longest known Greek sentence in the language. Why? Well, Paul just can't get over it, right? It's like his pen just starts going crazy with all that we've been given, all the spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ. Now, we're going to break that down a little bit more succinctly, right? We're going to go kind of verse by verse by verse here because we want to really know our identity in Christ. But for this morning, let's just sum this all up. When the lie comes that says you have no power to live the Christian life, what do we do? Do we believe the lie? No, we speak the truth. And the truth is, if you're falling on your notes, God has given us his very spirit to help us live the Christian life in power and victory. He has given us everything we could possibly need. I'll close with a story. There's a famous story of a woman named Hetty Green who lived in the very early 1900s. And when Hetty Green died, they had found that she had $100 million in her bank account. Now think about that in 1911 or whatever is when she died. Think about how much money that would be today. And yet she lived like the poorest of poor people. She would eat cold oatmeal because she didn't want to pay for the, power, for the heat to be turned on in her home. Instead of taking her son to the doctor for some easy fix, he, she had, she eventually, he, had, he eventually had to get his leg amputated because she just didn't want to go spend the money on the doctor, so... He had to do that. I I could go on and on. She lived like a, we don't use this word anymore, she lived like a miser. And all I want to say to you is so many Christians live like Hetty Green. We think it's all at the end of our life, there's going to be some big bank account with $100 million, but I'm here to tell you this morning, you have access to that now. You have all the power you could possibly need to live the Christian life successfully. You just have to learn how to start withdrawing it. You just got to start withdrawing it, and you got to start using it. So as we close, I'll leave you with this question to ponder this week. Do I believe the truth that I have everything I need to live in Christ? As I said, we're going to start talking about all those amazing things, all these amazing things that we are in Christ starting next week. We sure hope you can join us. But this week, this week, believe the truth. You can live the Christian life with Christ in you, the hope and glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you again that the gospel really is good news. Good isn't even good enough. It is great news. We thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, that you don't see us with that first shirt. Even when we believe those lies, that's not how you see us. You see us as saints. You see us as saints, set apart for your purposes, and you have empowered us with everything we need to walk in victory and truth in this life. Teach us in the weeks to come how to do it. Teach us about our identity. Teach us about who we are so that we can learn from that place how to live a life worthy of the gospel. Everybody agreed and said, amen.